all the things you ever wanted caused you to do all the things you ever did and all the things you ever did have not put you in a position to be where you want to be. You have to stop and think about changing the way you think about things. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Hi, Great to Wealth listeners. It's you on and manage real estate. Maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax-deferred real estate exchange because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend Ray Druitt is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801-312-9482 or you may visit his website at 1031.bangerterfinancial.com slash 1031guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. Welcome back, Migrate to Wealth listeners. Today, we're going to be talking to Ryan Smith from Elevation Capital Group. Ryan has had tremendous experience. As a young man, he started a software company, sold it, built a portfolio of passive income, went into active. He's managing over billion dollars in assets now, raised over $400 million in private capital. So all in all, the guy is actually perfect for our show. And we're thankful to having Ryan on our show. Ryan, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Ryan, before we get into your amazing story, an inspiring one, let me ask a question that I always open with is, what does the word migrate to wealth, what does that mean to you when you heard it for the first time? Yeah, to me, it strikes me as a person on a journey and a continuum of, it could be geographic, it could be educational, it could be experiential, but you're not where you want to be and you're modifying either physically or intellectually your position to get closer to what you want. That's why you're on the show, Ryan. That's exactly what our show is about. It's really trying to help you move from point A to point B, whatever the point A is. If you're not happy with that point A, hopefully you're not happy with that point A because if you're happy, then if you're not growing, you're dying. So if you're too complacent with point A, our goal is to jigger you and to help you figure out what your point B is. But if you're on that journey, we're a partner with you by bringing people like Ryan and their insights with Ryan, what was your migration to wealth journey, buddy? It was iterative in pieces and parts. I'll just say I, just tree-topping it for the benefit of your listeners, I don't need to hear my story one more time. So I'm trying to think about the ones that might be helpful to your listeners. But we, my wife and I started our company many years ago, and we both came from very poor or humble beginnings. So we've learned a lot along the way. We've had mentors who themselves would know that we call them mentors. They're people who drop nuggets that we glean from. And we've been able to put together a lot over the years. But in short, I started a software company. I started coding when I was eight, started a software company when I was a teenager. It, and it was built for real estate investors to help them better analyze their investments. And I built it for my dad who was just struggling to do his own analytics for single family properties he was buying 
as we crawled out of the lower income brackets through real estate. So anyway, I ended up selling that company, making quite a bit of money relative to my age. And so my wife and I, we had this chunk of cash and we wanted to do a number of things, much like probably the people who are your clients or listeners to this podcast. You know, you have a base of capital. It's not everything you need, or at least you don't think it is. So the question is, how do you get what you want with the limited resources of what you have? that A to B of what you were Mm -hmm. thinking about. So Jamie and I, we started buying real estate. Initially, we bought single family houses. It's what our parents did. We bought about 30 single family houses in our early 20s. We came to the realization pretty quickly that business was very hard to scale and achieve economies of scale without buying many more than 30 units. So we hit pause on the single family part of the business and we started looking for a better way to go. And so the four things, I guess, for clarity, the four things we wanted at that time was we wanted cash flow, we wanted capital appreciation, tax benefits. And the fourth thing, there's a thousand ways to say the same thing, but we wanted cycle resiliency, non-correlation, low beta. As the economic roller coaster does what it does, we wanted off the roller coaster as much as we possibly get. So those were the four things we wanted. And so we spent a long weekend in our early 20s and basically came up with a a model for every asset class we could think of along those four key kind of KPIs of what we wanted as outcomes. And the two best performing asset classes by our evaluation were storage and mobile home parks. We evaluated everything that we could think of, billboards, office, retail, multifamily, the gamut. And the two that we thought would be the best for what we wanted were storage and mobile home parks. So that was where we started. We started looking for and finding mobile home parks and storage facilities to buy. And we started buying them. The first dozen or so was just our capital, our credit. And then in 2010, we formed our first fund to take advantage of what we thought was a market opportunity. And we were right. But that's when we first formed our first fund. And then the last thing I'll just throw out because it might be worth conversating around I mentioned those four things. We were pretty heavily in our early 20s, really weighted towards income where we really wanted, our goal initially was 10,000 a month of cash passive. I'd say that we were actively managing, but it's still relatively passive. Yes. But we called it passive income. We wanted 10,000 a month and then we achieved that. And then we wanted 20,000 a month and then we achieved that. And that was continuing in that trajectory. I think we were at 50,000 a month when we met a gentleman who hit us with an intellectual two by four. And this gentleman, I'm happy to tell you who he is, but at the time I met him, he was the fifth largest owner of storage in the United States privately at 55,000 units, which I didn't even know was possible for a Mm -hmm. human to have. And he asked me what our goal was. And I said something like, we're trying to get to 50,000 a month of passive cash flow. And his comment was, that's fine if that's what you want. Was not the slightest bit impressed with the number was not intrigued, not complimentary. It was basically for you, it was 5X from where you started. So it's a great number. I'm in my mid twenties. I'm like, come from blue, pretty humble beginnings. It's a big deal. And this guy's poo-pooing it. And and so I bit, I took the bait. I said, okay, then what should I want? And I, that was my actual question or reply to him is, okay, if that's not the right answer, I'll bite. What should I want? And his comment to me really, it was pretty instantaneously transformative. It really was. He just said, that's fine if that's what you want, but it is impossible to become wealthy through in is the entire tax regime is structured so that you will never become wealthy through earned income. He said, right. through 
if you change your focus and you focus on wealth creation, wealth can create all the cash flow you ever need, but you will never create wealth from cash flow. So order of priority is wrong. It's wealth, then cash flow, not cash flow to wealth. I can talk through how that transformed, like what did we do to respond to that different in our business, but it really did change the way we discharged our business or worked in our business. And all these years later, I will tell you, he was right. I now have seen it firsthand. He was right. I'm glad he hit me over the head with the two by four. I needed it. Uh, and it's been great. Ryan, this is actually great because I love that. Thinking about anybody who's trying to break out of the proverbial nine to five, they're talking about cash flow. Everyone has this favorite number of 10K per month. At some point, it was mine. Then you keep hitting those goals and you're exceeding it. Eventually, you come to somebody that's like, you know what? You can do more. You can do more. You can do more. But what I really loved, gentleman's story that he used was wealth can create all the cash flow you want, but all the cash flow in the world cannot create the wealth you want. It is so powerful, Ryan. It is so powerful for all the listeners. If you actually have never heard that before, it's very powerful. And what I want to do is I want to take that comment and pass it into two different kits. One's going to be the bucket for people like yourself and myself who are actively involved in our investing career, who are actually managing funds, managing uh, assets. But then there's a whole stream of us who are really thinking about passive income. But we're, what maybe we're looking at passive income incorrectly, we're talking looking at passive income is let's just focus on the cash flow component of it and forget about the aviation of it. Because that's a flip this equation that he talked about. It can apply to both the active and passive world. And I would love to deeper dive. Why don't we start with how did you guys implement that? You and Jamie implemented in your business. And then we'll parlay into how the investors can use that. Sure, you bet. So there's a Newtonian aspect to it. And to a degree, when we change paths and focus more on wealth creation as opposed to income, and just to not lose sight, wealth creation so that we can then monetize it and use it to then create cash flow in that order. So the Newtonian aspect is it, it's a quality issue. So typically you, you get paid in cash flow in order to higher cash flow in the short run to take more risk. So at that point in time, we were buying generally lower quality secondary tertiary market properties. In the mobile home park space, we would have more park-owned homes, which are the mobile homes that we would then own as park-owned rent them out, which is more active management, more expense, i.e. more risk. And so we were basically getting compensated for risk because we wanted more cash flow. And right. so uh, the ramification is we were taking more risk in order to generate more cash flow. But in doing that, there was a lower buying pool because it was a smaller market, the bigger buckets, the bigger pockets wouldn't want to buy those assets. So they would trade for much higher cap rates, i.e. much lower multiples. So it was much higher cash flow, much less equity accumulation. So we flipped it on its head. We went after, as a result, we started targeting higher quality assets and more primary markets where your cash flow in the short run was lower but the risk you took to generate it was also much lower. And as a result, you have much, you have a more liquid market, more buyers, more lenders, lower cap rates, higher multiples. And so now what we own is we own projects in Alexandria, Virginia, which I know is your old stomping ground. Yeah, I love that placement. Yeah, so we own really nice and really good metros that I think we will own 20 to 30 years from now and happily, and, and they're generating cash flow in the present, but we think 
the path to increased cash flow over the next 10, 20, 30 years will be pretty significant by virtue of the location, the quality. So that's the change we made is we went after bigger properties, more institutional quality, better locations, and we're okay making less in the short run in order to make exceedingly more in the long run. So Ryan, help me understand that. And then we'll parlay into the passive investment piece as well. When you talk to, at that point, when you made that switch, were you raising capital, external capital, or were you still all your own capital? So it's been on a continuum. So when we made that switch, we were not raising capital from third parties, but we raised capital for our first fund subsequent to that switch. Got it. We continued to improve upon that model as we went. So as a general statement, over the last 10 to 15 years, we've generally bought better and better location, higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, so not. So it's continued in that direction. So now let, let's switch that gear into a passive investor who is chasing cash flow, especially in the time where I, we're recording in September 2023. And I don't think much is going to change in the next three months or two months when it gets released. It'll get released. The show will get released a little bit long, later than we're recording. Assuming not much have changed, the interest rates are about six, seven, eight percent. The treasury is four year. Or one of your treasuries giving you about 5%. When we talk about in this environment, we talk about when everyone's saying is that, hey, you know what, if I have to invest in an asset class that's going to give me 6 7 8% interest rate or cash flow return, why would I invest in that? Because I don't know what's going to happen in the appreciation, right? And then your model is really going back to the time where the interest rates were low, and people are actually offering them 7, 8, 9, 10, 12% cash on cash uh, because they could, because to your point, the risk was higher. However, the risk was justified as conservative underwriting, which we all know what that means, because especially for those who don't know how to dig into, not saying it doesn't exist, but you have to dig into it. What does that really mean? It's a facade at the onset, but some are more conservative than the others. So you have to understand what the risk level. So how did you wrestle with that, especially when you're raising your funds at that point where you've switched the asset classes within, sorry, you've switched the risk level within the asset class. You're now buying a higher grade asset class than the lower one, which essentially means it's going to be a lower cash on cash, but it's going to be an asset which has less headache and hopefully will appreciate more in the long term because your whole time also increases. So tell me how your investors thought about it then we'll parlay into what are some of the insights for people who are trying to get into that space as a passive investor. Yeah. So first, I wouldn't necessarily have a window into the way our investors think about it, meaning we're very clear on what we do, how we do it, where we're going. And for those who see the world the way we do, they can join us or not. But we're really big on educating people in, in the way of educating them to see the world like we see them. If somebody's going left, down the wrong path. We're not going to chase some running, screaming, yelling, saying you're going down the wrong path. This path is much better. Let me tell you why it's much better. We just tend to want to work with the people who see the world our way, which yeah. from a capital raising standpoint or a business owner standpoint, typically the people who see the world our way are the people who are long-term focused. They want to generate cash flow, but secondary to wealth creation, generate tax benefits, those things. Typically, they're more significant seasoned investors and also write bigger checks by, by virtue of those prior things. Anyway, that's a piece on that. But I will say on the investor mindset, there's two things that strike me. One is 
and this is circular, but to me, there's a lot of folks who are trying to leave corporate America by basically seeking the same thing that put them in the position that they don't like presently. If all the things you ever wanted caused you to do all the things you ever did and all the things you ever did have not put you in a position to be where you want to be, you have to stop and think about changing the way you think about things, right? It is said another way. If you constantly go after the same thing and it doesn't get what you want, it's the definition of sanity. But, but people, they go after the better educations to get a better job. They go after higher salaries and then they get to a position in their life where they realize for most those outcomes have not produced the feeling of freedom. And some of your listeners have made two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand in a year or more, and they still don't feel free. So if those unbelievable amounts of cash flow haven't produced freedom, why would more cash flow suddenly mm -hmm. produce freedom? Right? That is interesting. You're right, Ryan. Yeah. I think I'm not saying it's true or false, but it at least should cause questions. Right. It should cause somebody to ask the question. So that's that. And then on the investment side, if you're entering into an investment purely from the view of I've got limited means, I need to generate as much cash flow as I possibly can get, that typically leads you to, in many cases, take more risk than you're probably willing to take mm. by going after the investments that are more rural, higher LTV. There's a reason you're getting a higher yield when it's risk. And so what I think a lot of investors over the last five years have probably taken that head fake where they took more risk than they thought they were taking in order to get what they thought they want. Yeah. But now they're in a position where they realize they really didn't want that and shouldn't have wanted that. And then there's a lesson there. But lastly, the, the last part I would say is real estate is great. It is I think it has tremendous merit for all the reasons we would agree upon, but I think real estate solely as an income generator, I think if you reduce real estate solely to an income generation avenue, I think there are better options in the short run if you're looking at just for income generation. But when you take it on the whole for capital appreciation, the tax benefits, because to your point earlier, if somebody invests in a treasury and they get a 6% yield. I can match that with a 4% distribution tax yield. You're paying right. tax on my four is not paying tax. So my four is equal to your six. It's a tax adjusted right. six. My six is a tax adjusted nine. When you look at the income, the tax benefits, the capital appreciation and the long-term picture, I think real estate has merit. But I think sometimes people look at through a very narrow lens and they're really trying to fit a round I'd say a square peg into a round hole. That's not what real estate's meant to be. Yeah, I love that perspective, Ryan. I think you're just giving more food to think through, right? Because it's important. What I loved about your saying was uh, the way you put together is that if the 500 in your job and making up a number, two to 500K in your job hasn't given you the freedom, why would that amount of passive income give you freedom? The only thing is you don't have to work active, so you have more free time, but it doesn't mean you have freedom, right? And there's a difference between the two, so ask yourself that question. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it or should do it. That's not Ryan is talking about. He's giving you perspective and challenging your thought process, which is very important. Say, is it really going to give you the freedom? And if not, what will? Because you have to know that answer, because if you don't know that answer, you never feel free in life. That's important. I think the second thing is that I really liked about it is that Real estate as the only source of income, if that's the only metric you evaluate on, 
there may be other ways to look at it. Right? That you're completely right and much less riskier way. We're talking about right. treasuries right there, 6%, 4%. Treasuries are arguably the riskless, most riskless asset that exists in the world right now, at least the U.S. treasuries. So it doesn't make sense to take on risk. However, you're buying these assets because of the multiple dimensionality of its tax benefits. Depending upon how your taxes are structured, you could literally zero out your taxes. You definitely have the potential of, if you buy it, if you invest with the right operator of capital appreciation. Now, it does come with a risk. You have to all understand that. Like if we, it's not treasuries. There's going to be some amount of risk. But if you're investing for the right person who knows what they're doing, the risk is minimized, not eliminated. Ryan, let's go back to the conversation that you said something that you locked yourself in a room or you didn't say that word, but you and Jamie went away a weekend and reviewed all different asset classes against the metric you had. For someone in that position right now, they have the capital, they're trying to figure out what to do next with their money. How did you understand all the possible asset classes that could exist for you? And I'm pretty sure you didn't cover the entire gamut, but you covered pretty good, pretty good amount of asset classes that you thought were important. How did you go with that amount of analysis and what resources were at your disposal at that time? Yeah, really good question. And it was, I would say it was abundantly simple, but in even all these years later, my goal in business is to keep things simple. So not much has changed. There's a lot of shiny objects on the horizon that scream of new complexities, but to avoid those. But the root simplicity was we were looking for businesses with good net operating income and the prospects for consistent and stable and considerable net operating income growth in the future. And so we wanted a business that had good and consistent net operating income growth. Sure. It's called wide growth. And then from that being the clear principle we were going after, typically what then produces that is supply-demand balances. As much as you can, you want really good demand and finite supply. And that generally would produce good net operating income. So our, our model was around supply demand for the purpose of NOI growth. And so when you look at mobile home parks, we landed on the concept that mobile home parks, we thought low income affordable housing was in demand, continue to be in demand and would grow, grow in demand. We were wrong, by the way, with how much it's grown. We were short of what it has actually grown by. So demand is up significantly since we made that call, so to speak. And then our belief was supply would remain constrained by predominantly the stigma and coupled with the fact that local municipalities do not generate good tax revenue from mobile home parks. So hmm. we didn't think there would be many more mobile home parks created. So sure. in the last years, there have been very few mobile home parks created and demand is almost 400% what it was then. So that's produced pretty incredible NOI and similar evaluation from self-storage surrounding that asset class. So it was more supply-demand inputs as it pertains to NOI. So Ryan, how did you prepare yourself, you and Jamie, how did you prepare yourself for that weekend? And it may not be the exact science, kind of like, how did you have access to this data? Where the supply is going to be high, where the demand is going to be high? Were you just applying common sense? It was all common sense. I was a programmer. I got the public sources of data that I could get at that yeah. time. But a lot of it was common sense. And just a thought that we could be right, we might be wrong. But at the end of the day, it was our capital we were risking. And even then, we went out. Our first property from that determination was a low-end mobile home park in Alabama that we found. We didn't know anybody in the business. We just basically said, we're going to go buy it and mm -hmm. see if it proved 
true. We're going to go see if our model proves true. And our model proved true. And then we bought a second one and maybe that would break our model. We don't know. And we bought a second one. Yeah. Didn't break. And so we didn't have to be certain before taking action, especially when it wasn't our capital. So we took a risk on our capital and thankfully we were right. Ended up buying, I think we bought around 10 before we started our first fund. Got it. Got it. So you proved that the model doesn't break for the first 10. And if it doesn't break for the 10, there's a very high probability it won't break. That makes sense. It's so interesting. You actually scaled without going to a mentorship program or joining a mastermind and all that good stuff. I'm sure there was noise around you at that time. And I wasn't thinking about this back in 2010, so I have no idea what was happening at that time. So tell me more about how did you tune out that noise? I hope I don't ruffle feathers in the way I respond because that's not my intention. I generally see the world a little bit different than others, which causes me to do things different. To me, two things. One, if I were going to a mastermind with a person who's a key man, to me, they would tell you about the person who influenced their life. So to me, for me, why am I talking to them? I want to know the person who impacted you and so that I can go further up more direct to the point of origin. And then the second is more conceptual. Like I'm a big believer that water meets moving streams or water joins moving streams. So to me, what a lot of people will do is they don't feel like they have enough to take that first step towards new action. In some cases, as a stall technique, they will join other people in the hopes that being around enough people will provide that for them to pull the trigger, where they just need to pull the trigger and go. And you know what they're doing and doing that is they're uh, Terry joining another stream. But in as much as you're looking for somebody else's stream to join, if you move forward and just take the leap. There are, just like you could be a stream to somebody else, there are other streams that will be like that to you mm. because most people don't want to be the original stream moving forward. It's much easier to join an existing than to start a new. But if you're willing to start the new, you will not be alone for long because there's many others that would join. And so for me, I, I was never a mastermind person, a book reader. And then the other benefit is I'll talk to people all the time who they'll say something and I'm like, oh, that's Tony Robbins book. Not that there's anything wrong with Tony Robbins, but I know the book they're reading because they're using his words, they're using his phrases. And for me personally, it's, I want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to the person who wrote the book you just read. Right. I want to hear your feeling. I, I do read, I do uh, aggregate data and information, but I'm not a big figurehead follower. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, Ryan, this has been great, man, Ryan. Wow, man, what an insightful conversation, packed conversation in 30 minutes. Ryan, I really appreciate it, man. I'm, we're coming towards the end of our show. We'll ask you three questions. The first question really is, going back to that 20-year-old self who started a software company, sold it, if you had to give a few insights to that person, just maybe one insight to that person, what would that one insight be? Looking back, that I am confident I would not want you, to, and you probably would agree with that, you would not want to change a single thing about that person because the person you are today is because of that person. Yeah, true. This is an eye-rolling comment, but I would say listen to this webinar, listen to this podcast, and that would have me learn the same things I needed to learn, but much earlier. Derivatively, I would have told my younger self about getting hit in the head by an intellectual two-by-four six years sooner. I'm stealing that because I think that statement that somebody told you who that person was, it's probably one of the most powerful statements that I've heard in a long time. It's, it's yep. a game changer. It's a game changer. For me, I know it will be, and I'm hoping for my listeners as well. Around the second question, buddy, and I'm very confident, or at least 
90% confident because with you, I can't tell anymore. Where should humanity as a whole, you believe, should migrate towards in the next two to three decades? Yeah, it's a really good question. If I had my druthers, it would humanity as a whole would think less of itself and more about others. I think as a result of having it really good, I think we as humans do not do well. We do not do well being bored. So I think a lot of the noise, a lot of the vitriol, a lot of the screaming and yelling is a byproduct of actually really good conditions. And unfortunately, I think the cure is tough times. I think we need to be reoriented and reminded of our humanity. And I think in experiencing the difficulty that most humanity has on this planet, I think it makes you more empathetic towards what normal people every day experience to your left and to your right. And so I think we need to be regrounded and maybe that's more culture and the Western culture as set against entity. But I, I think we need to be regrounded, think less of ourselves and be more externally focused. At least that would be my wish if I could wish it. Love that, Ryan. Hey, that's why we asked that question to show you our non-analytical side of what you think about the world. So thank you, bud. Thank you for sharing your insight. Ryan, one last question, buddy. In the last 33-ish minutes that we have talked, what's something about you or your business that we haven't talked about that your wish would add tremendous value to the Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to talk about because it's self-defeating. But I think a big part of what we do is to benefit others and much more than just a check written. But at the same time, I don't think the left hand is supposed to know what the right hand is doing regarding yeah. general giving. So I'm not a big believer in talking about what you're doing on that front, but that is a big part that motivates and drives me. But at the same time, I don't feel inclined to tell you all the things I'm doing because that's the reason you do it. But that's a big part. I appreciate that, Ryan. Thank you again for sharing your insights, your life, uh, 30-ish minutes of your life with us. We appreciate that. Ryan, if people want to learn more about you, your work, where can they be part of it? Where can they find you? Yeah. So anytime, reach out. I'd love to be helpful. Our website is elevationcapitalgroup.com. My email is ryan at elevationcg.com. Perfect. Ryan, thank you again, buddy. Appreciate it. And for the listeners, if you're listening to this part of the conversation, that means we haven't lost you. So thank you for staying with us. Ryan has done a tremendous job in summarizing his decades of experience and insights and learnings. I hope it had value to you and you keep coming in for other shows. Appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you, buddy. You bet. Thank you. My great to Wealth listeners, if you own and manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend Ray Druitt is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801-312-9482. Or you may visit his website at 1031.bangertofinancial.com slash 1031guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. 
That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.